Head over to James 1. That's where we're going to be in our text this morning. Uh, we are four weeks into our series, Enjoy. And if I could just catch you up. I am so sorry, Vimeo people. That must have been awful. Um, if I could just catch you up on where we've been this morning. We find in Scripture... We find in God's active, breathing, alive word that the unifying mark of those who have placed their faith in the risen Jesus, the thing that makes us together, the thing that, that tells the rest of the world who we are is joy, a life marked by joy. Historically, this has been taught as we are reminded of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, what is the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy him. That as we get to know him more deeply by his word and his world, we are made more fully and more deeply complete in his joy. And we've defined joy. Because definitions are important. We've defined joy as a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. As he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. So if you haven't put it together by now, let me help you. God has given us his children. God has given us those who have placed our faith in him. Those of us who are convinced according to the scriptures that Jesus is who he says he is. That what he's done in his life, in his death and resurrection is for us. He has given us his joy. His joy. That he is the object of. That he is the center of. And, and we increase in joy. Here in this world, by centering our lives with his help around him. And when we read his word, when we experience his world, we receive more of him, which makes us more happy in him. Our joy is in God, through God, and for God. He is the source of it and the supplier of it on Friday my wife and I went with the, the Glubkers. Some of you know them. We went to uh, Gleason Park. Anybody know that park? Gleason Park. I, I, if I knew the area, but I'd tell you where it was. But it was, it was close to here. Um, but we went to Gleason Park. And um, my wife, as we were leaving, we pack up the car. My wife loses her phone. Now, if you've been with us since week one, you know this is a reoccurring theme in our lives. My wife loses her phone often. But we're, we're, we're searching the park. We knew it was there because the find my iPhone feature was on. And so, because iPhone's the best. And, and we're, we're looking and we're going. And we're, we're, we're searching, we're searching. We can't find it. Eventually, we got it back. But this is to say that sometimes there are seasons in life which you think your joy has been lost. Sometimes there are seasons in life where you think, you believe your joy has been stolen. Oh, but if you only knew that you cannot lose such a gift like this. When God gives his, gift, his children gifts, like his own peace, like his own love, like his own grace, his own mercy, his joy, you can't lose it because he protects it. Your joy is never lost. But there's something to say in here about emotional maturity. 
emotional maturity of the believer to realize something like this. See, I'm a sinner too, so I I have no problem confessing to you that while we couldn't find my wife's phone, I was getting agitated. I was getting frustrated. And I was searching and calling her phone repeatedly and with every ring in my ear that did not result in me hearing a ring outside. I just got so anxious. I had to pray for the Lord to relax this in me. There's something about emotional maturity as its relationship to spiritual maturity. Just follow me. Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, says, It's impossible for you to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. That's a word, ain't it? And what he's getting at there is God's sanctifying process isn't just in the mind. It isn't just in the service, the work that we do. It is in the heart, the feelings as well. God just doesn't want you to cognitively memorize to know God and enjoy him forever like some sort of robot. He wants that to lead to something. He wants your affections to be stirred, those hands to work. I was on Instagram the other day and I came across this R.C. Sproul lecture where he said, we are people, we are called, sorry, to be people of the truth. It is not enough to have true theology. That's Sproul. He's like our Pope. It is not enough to have true theology. He says, we are called to be. What he's saying there ties into our text something lovely. R.C. is saying, it's not enough to know what your attitude should be. It's not enough to know what suffering produces. We have to act. We have to feel. And that's only done through Jesus and with Jesus, and this week we find ourselves studying the first few verses of James's book, having a particular emphasis on the experience of the believer. When we say that the Spirit causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the Word and in the world, in the world means how you experience it, how you interact with both God's creation and the remaining effects of sin. How you interact with the sweetness and glory of good days. And how you persevere through trials, circumstances, and pitfalls in life. And what James is going to teach us this morning is that we have all joy. Say all. All joy in all trials. James is going to show us the attitude we have about trials will determine how we see the advantages of them. That the attitude we have about trials will determine how we see the advantages of them. Those are our two big points this morning, attitude and advantages. So let's read God's word. Let's pray for his help to carry it through, to carry us through our study and hear what he has to say through it all. James 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you are great and marvelous. The whole earth sings your praises. The sun declares your glory. The weather shouts your care. The birds sing your song. God, we lift you high this morning. Gift me as a communicator with clarity of speech and thought. And gift the congregation as listeners with attentiveness, grace for my errors, and the encouragement of your love. God, be with us this morning as we celebrate the good news of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Of all the close relationships that Jesus had with people, there is none more interesting to me than his relationship with his brother, James. Can you imagine the vantage point that James had to see the Messiah growing up? Now, although James was the younger brother, it's still an interesting dynamic. You live with, share a room with your Savior. All the things he must have seen, all the miracles he performed just for their own eyes. I think of my relationship with my brother. We have a similar thing going on. We share the same mother. But there is no moment in each other's lives, if we could help it, which we didn't experience together. We slept in the same room. We shared the same food. We made the same jokes. We got in trouble together. Jesus wasn't getting in trouble, but we, I mean, we got in trouble together. I mean, other than Mary and Joseph, James knew Jesus the most intimate. James knew Jesus the best. And what I find fascinating in this particular part, the, the, the thing I'm about to say, what I find fascinating about James and Jesus' relationship the most, James didn't believe. He didn't believe. He did not believe that his older brother was the Christ. James could not believe. He couldn't believe that his older brother was Jesus the Christ. How? How? James grew up Jewish. He knew the text. He knew what the promises were. He knew what the Messiah was going to look like. He knew the story. He knew that he was coming. He heard his mother's words explained to him that Joseph was not Jesus' birth father. I mean, he saw his brother disappear run away to the temple and say, I'm in my father's house. He saw Jesus turn water to wine. He saw Jesus feed, heal the sick, uh, uh, make the lame walk, give sight to the blind. He saw all of that. And still, just didn't believe that he was the Christ. Family, there, there's something other than facts to convince this man, right? And what, about, what do I mean by facts is like cognitive rationale, Right? It's something other than that that would convince this kind of man. Something other than the truth. Not like the truth as Jesus is the truth, but truth. Like this is a true statement. Like, like the sky is blue and you refusing to believe that. That kind of truth. Something needed to happen to help James realize that his brother came for him. 
That Jesus was there for James. That Jesus was there for his brother's sins. To sacrifice himself for his brother's iniquities. To be a propitiation between his brother and his father. Oh, this is an amazing narrative. This is a marvelous story. Some of you, church, did not believe until you could not run away anymore. Christ outlasted you. He never gave up on you. He called you to him and you couldn't run far enough to not hear his voice anymore. See, when you've been predestined, elected, called before time was time, God is going to get you. It's not going to be the same way for everybody. I'm reminded of that core team in Philippi. You remember how the church at Philippi was started? It started with four pillars. Paul, obviously the first. There was two other women and another man. The first woman was Lydia. She's like a personal favorite of mine in the Bible. I won't run through her story, but basically how she came, well, she was at some kind of Bible study of sorts, and Paul interrupted it. And their conversation lasted longer than the study was. They ended up being alone, just wrestling. Lydia was wrestling with the truths that Paul was sharing with her. See, for Lydia... She had to be articulated into the faith. She needed it to make sense. God got her with her mind. The other woman was a demon-possessed slave girl. Paul rebuked the demon and the girl followed him. She needed a supernatural encounter with God. And the other man was a jailer. He was this rigged, rough, tough kind of guy, duty-bound. Paul was in prison, in prison that the jailer was guarding, preached to him to no avail. Something supernatural happened. They started singing and the, 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 the walls of the jail fell down and the jailer panicked. That didn't save him. It caused him to panic. But what saved him? Paul's example, he stayed. He stayed in the prison. That brought the jailer too. He needed Example, he needed to see Christ in someone. But James, James needed the resurrection. James needed the resurrection. He did not believe until he saw with his own eyes that his brother actually defeated death. He did not believe the logical arguments and reasonings, did not believe the example of Jesus himself, could not believe the supernatural miracles that were actually meaning, proving what they were proving, all but the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything for James. The resurrection changes everything for us. The resurrection of Jesus is our check cleared. The, the resurrection of Christ is proof that our eternity is secure in him. That he truly defeated death. That there is no sting that death could provide over us. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Christ proves that Christ was no liar. Christ was the real deal. That Christ's life was the payment for our sins once 
and for all. That he was acceptable to God. The resurrection proves that we've been passed over. That the anger of God and justice of God is satisfied. The resurrection is your proof of purchase. It's, it's to show that you've been blood bought. It's your ticket in. Without the resurrection family, we have no faith. We have no reason to gather. We have no reason to sing. No reason to hope. No reason to have joy. The joy we have in the Lord has been purchased by the spent life of Christ on your behalf, on my behalf, made permanent by the resurrecting power of him. How? Romans 8 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you before you take anything this morning take this point with you the same jesus the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead lives in you and is giving you joy in this truth right here that you woke up this morning and so did jesus on the third day after his death that's true that as you woke up this morning So did Christ on the third day. It took the resurrection for James to believe. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. My wife and I, the uh, only vacation I think we've ever been on since we've been married, not including our wedding trip. Uh, or family vacations. I'm talking about just us. <clears throat> we went on a trip to Kauai, one of the Hawaiian islands. It was because my aunt lived there. Just a few months before, some friends of ours at the time recommended this, uh, this like a map book. And it, the, the intention of this map was there to help you make the most of your journey. So I would go through the book and circle things I wanted to do and kind of just laid out the expectations of what you're going to get in Kauai. So the map is to help you see all of your journey before you. It's a prelude of the things to come. Verse 1 here is something like a map. James is going to let you know who he is and what he's about. Knowing, that you, knowing what you know about James, everything I just told you before, this greeting is full of humility. Consider all that you just learned. Consider all that we just found out about the, the backstory, the origin story, if you were, of James. Look at the style of writing. James has been convinced that Jesus is both brother and savior. James is about his business now. He is straight to the point. This greeting is, hello, my name is James, slave of Jesus. How are you? Hello, my name is Jesus. Or, my name is James. Jesus is Lord. Now let's get to work. He could have introduced himself as James, called the just, brother of Jesus, born of the same womb as the Holy Mary, disciple of Jesus, pillar of the church at Jerusalem. <coughs> no. No, 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 no. He chooses to introduce himself 
Not on the things that give him credibility. Not on the things that would make him seem more appealing a teacher. But on the thing that matters most. Consider this. Consider this family. James is living in a world that parades heredity. Right? Look at all the genealogies in the Bible. Who you come from. What sort of stock you have matters. It's important, incredibly important to your rank, your appeal, your ability uh, to be worthy of listening to the humility of James. He's not forsaking any of the ingredients that make him him. His church knew who he was. He knew who he was. But James, what James is doing in this greeting is showing us the position of his attitude. James was the just, but he was also the humble, the bold. I'm James. Jesus is Lord. Listen to what I got to say. And this is how he carries himself throughout this book. Man, we need more James today. Put him in contrast to Paul. A few weeks ago, on the last Sunday in December, we studied Ephesians 1. Paul's writing style is, here is the why, here is the how, now go respond. It's very much Paul. I love it. It's beautiful. Paul's letters are mostly, I'm going to give you the why. I'm going to give you the theological clarity and that'll convict you. That'll do its work in you. But James is equally holy approach. James is, oh, you say you're saved. You're telling me with your lips you're about this life. Prove it to me. Show me. Show me that you're so convinced that Jesus is Lord with your life. James is a man of action. He doesn't just want you to say it. He wants to see it in you. James wants to make sure that your actions are consistent with the values and beliefs you got from Jesus. A good leader just doesn't want to hear you say it. He wants to see if you're really about this life. Well, who is he writing to specifically? This is important. Well, he says to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. At the writing of this letter, the Jews were scattered. Due to different political regimes, different uh, countries invading and attacking and persecuting. They were scattered across Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, Africa, and Europe. The Jews were persecuted. Refused protection by the Gentiles. They were homeless, disenfranchised, robbed of their possessions. One commentator says that the Jews at this time had less social standing than slaves. They were subject to the Gentile elite. They were preyed upon, constantly forced into courts and unfair trials. They were viewed as scum. This was the normative rhetoric and social order about them. And this is the audience to which James pens this letter. Keep that in your mind when you read verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the no-nonsense, straight-to-business writing style of James. He goes right into the imperatives, which is an addressing of our attitude in trials. Even without the context of who his audience is. 
Think about this for just one second. Even without the context, even without knowing who he's writing to, remove that from your mind for just a second. This is still an audacious claim. Count it all joy when you're poor. Count it all joy when you're marginalized. Count it all joy when you let go from your job. When things said of you are, true, are not true of you, but they remain true because someone said it. Count it all joy when you lost a loved one. Count it all joy when your children go wayward. Count it all joy when you are depressed, when your body is failing you. Count it all joy, the audacity of such a claim, the impossibility of it. But to the persecuted, marginalized, downtrodden, and hurt Jews, this is a surprising read. You've been taken from your homes. You've been separated from your children. You are beaten and shamed for your faith. Count it all joy. My brothers, God is doing something in this. God is doing something to you. This is an admonishing of their attitude about trials. We should face them with an upright attitude of joy. We must see our position in calamities as prompts for rejoicing. Something that produces pure joy in us or all joy. That's the first word in the Greek here. All joy. It's our emphatic position. If you were to read this literally in Greek, it would say, all joy, esteem it when trials you fall into. James is teaching us that our attitude about trials can either increase our suffering in them if we believe the lie that they are purposeless or can ease our suffering in them when we see them as productive for the plan of God. You didn't hear that. James is teaching us that our attitude about trials can either increase our suffering in them if we believe the lie that they are purposeless or it can ease our suffering, ease our suffering in them when we see them as productive to the plan of God. What is your attitude like when you go through what you go through? What is the position of your heart when you are metaphorically drowning in your circumstances? What James is offering us is a mercy. He could leave us to complaining and groaning. He could leave us to be believing the lie that this is unmerited, unwarranted issues we are facing. Or we can see every trial as a triumph. We can see every prom every. Every problem as a promise fulfilled. You got to see it that way. You can thank God today for the trouble that you are in. You can thank God for the pain that you have now. You got to see it that way. All joy, esteem it when trials you fall into. That's to keep the attitude of joy in the front of your mind when you fall into trial. You got to see it that way. Your attitude has to change. Joy. You are in joy. This is happening. Joy. Work is frustrating. Joy. I don't like the traffic. Joy. You could apply this to the big and the small. But I have to warn you. You can easily misread this as a command to be joyous about pain. You could read this and say, how am I supposed to smile when I need to weep? 
How could James say this? But that is not what James is saying. He is not teaching, instructing us to enjoy our trials. No. He's not teaching us to celebrate when we hear the story of cancer. No. Don't hear that. Kent Hughes says, James is commending the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding life that brings joy into the trials that come because of our Christianity. It means that when we experience trials, we should respond to them with joy, not be joyful about them, not be happy about them, but experience them in such a way that we know that though this is painful, though this is uncomfortable, though this is not my favorite moment in life, I'm going to cry, but God is at work. I know this means something. It's an attitude, an outlook, and a a decision to see trials, to receive trials as mercy. I will say this very often to you. So don't get tired of hearing it. Nothing will happen to you. Nothing will happen to you today. That hasn't already ran through God's good, mighty, and sovereign intentions. Nothing. That's joy. A good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. When you see trials in this world, you can see Jesus in them. That's grace. It makes no sense to count it all joy except in Jesus. In Jesus, you can see the advantage of trials. Look at verse 3. For you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you've been with us throughout this series, then this makes sense to you. Look at the way James begins, for you know, for you know, it's, it's literally translated knowing through experience. I'm sorry, we're doing a lot of Greek, but knowing through experience. This is a reminder, a reminder that trials experienced rightly with the attitude to count them all joy produces the gift of steadfastness. The Greek there is endurance. Endurance. See, when you go through what you go through, you get endurance. I hope this illustration brings you clarity. I'm a big boxing fan. I love, love boxing. In boxing, one of the, one of the under, most underutilized punches up until recently has been the body shot. See, trauma to the body, it weakens the legs, it takes away your breathing, it hinders movement. There are multiple ways to prepare against a punch to the body. But one technique I want to focus on is very simple. Get hit. Get hit. Repeatedly take hits to the body to be able to endure any attempt to take your wind, take your movement, slow your progress. Oh, that's a word, ain't it? You want to know how to guard against trials taking you out? You got to get hit. The advantage of trials 
is in the outcome of the trial itself. But unlike boxers competing for glory and dominance like a gladiator, we see the advantage of trials are producing in us endurance, fortitude, patience. The text says the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith gives meaning to the trials, not to build ourselves up, but to be be conformed ever so slowly in the image of Jesus. The point is Jesus. The point is every pain is making you like Christ. Every battle is beating you into Jesus's mold. As Jesus was tested, so are we. As as Jesus endured all that he went through for the joy that was laid before him, so will we. He is the point. That's the advantage of trials. Oh, but there's more. The testing here is dokimion. That's the Greek, right? Testing. But what it means, what it's speaking to, is to be found approved. To be found approved. Not proving. Not proving. But to be found approved. To be genuine. James is not saying trials are to test your worthiness to obtain faith. Or for the sole purpose of obtaining endurance. No. No. But what he is saying is that because you have faith like gold, because you have faith like gold, you can stand the fire. You can stand the test of trials and endure. And therefore prove the genuineness of your faith. Without true faith, the fire, the trial would only produce ashes. It would only produce ashes. All of you are still standing right now. This is my encouragement to your ears. Hear this. You cannot be eternally broken. You cannot be burned. All that you go through proves it. The faith James is talking about here is faith that is caught up in Jesus. Faith that is caught up in the person and work of Christ. Who is the author and perfecter of what? Our faith. Oh, there is nothing experienced here in this life that is meaningless. Those trials are proving your faith. They are showing you are genuine. You have been found approved. That you're real. That it's building you up. Not for your own kingdom. But for Christ's kingdom. I want to close on verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. The main theme of Jesus' letter is to walk the believer into maturity. Because you have a faith that can stand the fire of trial, you endure them. And that endure, that endurance, it works. It works. It works until it has produced perfect and complete. The original language is mature. The perfect is mature. The complete is whole. 
trials can be faced with joy. Because with faith, they produce endurance. And when endurance, and when endurance doesn't stop its work, it results in a thoroughly mature Christian who lacks nothing being all that God wants you to be the image of his son. All joy in all trials. Family, be glad for trials. They mature you, grow you in the faith. And if you're in a spot where you're thinking, I can't make it. This is too much for me to bear. Hear me, your faith will endure. Your faith will carry you to the end of the race. You will see Jesus. You will be caught up with him. And to a place where there is no more trial, is no more pain. No need to endure. You've made it. You've made it to the end. Stand with confidence now. You cannot be pushed down by trials. But this isn't for everyone. I wish it was. I wish this applied to everybody, but it doesn't. Those of you watching the stream. Maybe if you're sitting here now. Verse 2 says, count it all joy. Who? My brothers. My brothers. My brothers. Friend, this isn't applicable to everyone. This is only for the believers, the family in the faith. The advantages of trials come only to those whose attitude about them are found in the joy they have in the Lord. That's not for everybody. If you don't have that stuff, it's just stuff. It's just things you go through. What you go through, it, it has no meaning. You'll die with a couple more life lessons. See, when James says, my brothers, he's talking about the church. The messy, the broken, the incomplete church. Friend, this could be applicable today, though. This Jesus who makes all suffering, all trials mean something can be yours. He can be Lord of your life right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't believe the idea that when you get it all together, your trials will lessen. This, this is a falsehood. A popular thought when I was growing up was, well, when I have the money, it'll be all right. But in the famous words of Christopher Wallace, more money, more problems. Neither can I tell you, though, friend, that being a Christian will take the problems away. You just heard me yell. You just heard, you just heard me yell about how good they are for you. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ. Will, will, you can take that to the bank, will be persecuted. Life will always be full of testings for the true Christian. We must not imagine they will lessen over time. The, the question in light of our text today is this, will your trials build you up for your own kingdom? Will your trials build you up for your own game? Because if that's the case... And what you go through is meaningless. I love you, but no offense to you. Your kingdom dies with you. 
Christ's kingdom remains forever. Would you come to him now? Because you have a sin issue you can't buy your way out of. And he's calling you to be his this morning. You cannot outrun him. Come to Jesus. Would you all stand with me?